Were you aware that President Trump had specifically made reference to you in that call? No. What was your reaction to learning that? I was shocked. Absolutely shocked and, and devastated, frankly. What do you mean by devastated? I was shocked and devastated that um, I would feature in a phone call between two heads of state uh, in such a manner uh, where um, President Trump said that I was bad news to another world leader uh, and that I would be going through some things. Um, so I was, it, it was, it was a terrible moment. That was Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, testifying before Congress in November 2019 about the notorious phone call during which then-President Trump trashed her to the new president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and commented that she would, in Trump's words, be, quote, going through some things. It was the moment that the world first heard from Yovanovitch, a veteran U.S. diplomat who had devoted her career to serving the former Soviet republics and in the process becoming one of the country's leading experts on Ukraine, only to be dumped as ambassador because she was not perceived as promoting the corrupt interests of the American president and his cronies. She's now written a book, Lessons from the Edge, that imparts what she learned about Ukraine and about Vladimir Putin's Russia, lessons that are all the more important in the wake of Russia's brutal invasion. As Ukraine remains under siege and millions of its citizens flee for safety, we'll talk to Yovanovitch about what those lessons were and what Americans should know about them on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So there is something almost poignant to revisit uh, that uh, notorious phone call between Trump and Zelensky in which Trump is trashing Yovanovitch. Here's a career diplomat, somebody who's devoted her life to public service, to serving on the front lines uh, in the former Soviet republics, who's implementing U.S. policy as to the extent that it was clear and articulated, and then to find herself in this meat grinder in which a president and his corrupt cronies are trying to get rid of her for reasons that seemed almost inexplicable at the time, and then to have the world read and see the president trashing her to another foreign leader. It's still um, a staggering set of events to think about. Yeah, it's funny. Poignant was exactly the word that I was thinking about. And there's this sense in which Yovanovitch is, you know, kind of a personification of, you know, all these people during the Trump era who were operating under a certain set of principles and norms and, um, you know, everything that they'd always been taught. She was the classic, you know, professional civil servant, career diplomat, as, as you say, who was carrying out U.S. policy in the way that it had been carried out for decades, for generations. And all of a sudden, none of that matters anymore. 
all of a sudden everything is you know subservient to the political interests of uh, the president that she serves and the uh, corrupt financial interests of the people who she's battling against to advance American interests and the interests of liberal democracy and a free enterprise system and the rule of law in the country that she is, uh, where she is serving in Ukraine. And it's just this kind of like down the rabbit hole. It's, it's, it's so strange. And she captures a lot of that in, in her book. Meanwhile, I think the thing that really strikes me is how clear-eyed and focused she was on the person who should be focused on, which was Vladimir Putin. She knew and had his number probably long before anyone else did, or she was amongst the first to have a clear understanding of the of of his goals and his long-term impact on the West. And so while everyone was kind of engaged in a sideshow, Vladimir Putin kept being kind of either rewarded or not appropriately sanctioned leading up to this moment in Ukraine. I mean, to say she had a clear-eyed view of Putin may understate it to some extent, as we'll get into in the uh, in the conversation with her. She actually bought bracelets in bulk saying, fuck you, Putin, that she gave out while she was ambassador to Ukraine. So it gave her that, that gives you some idea of what she thought of uh, the Russian president. Uh, even then, uh, I shouldn't say even then, because there was plenty of evidence of his malevolence uh, at that time. But it just seems like things have ratcheted up so much uh, since the invasion to the point that now President Biden has called uh, Putin a war criminal. And that's struck me as a moment because I don't know how you dial the, the clock back or dial the knob back after you've called somebody a war criminal. It effectively means we can no longer deal with that government. We cannot have we cannot have meetings with Putin. We cannot invite him to summits. Uh, we cannot do anything. And so if there's, you know, just thinking this through, if if the only alternative to a prolonged war of attrition and the death and destruction of Ukrainians and, and their cities, if the only solution is a diplomatic one, how do you deal diplomacy with a war criminal? Well, I do think that you can deal with, with Putin. I think the United States government can deal with Putin to get to a diplomatic settlement you know, and on our terms, not on his terms. I agree with you that you but know, if you're a war that, criminal, you know, the only place you should be going is The Hague to be put on trial. You should, you know, we cannot deal with the leader of a foreign country who we have branded a war criminal. I don't think that's right. I think I think in the interest of I, I think I think in the interest. Well, uh, Milosevic, Once we've labeled Milosevic a war criminal. <laughs> Yeah, well, he hasn't been, you know, we didn't deal with him. He was put on trial. Right, but we 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 engaged with him and found and you know, Holbrook found some diplomatic solution. I don't remember where whether we had ever called him a war criminal, but by the way, it was fascinating the way this all came up. It was in some, I think, White House event and a, and there were a lot of people there and a reporter just kind of yelled out to Biden, you know, is Putin a war criminal? And Biden's first reaction was no started to walk away. And then he came back and said, what was your question? And she asked it again. And he said, yes. 
uh, he is a war criminal. So what struck me about that was his his first reaction was, you know, in line, I think, with what you're saying, that we have to be kind of cautious about how we label foreign leaders. And then I think he realized politically that, you know, these war crimes are playing out in front of our very eyes. We're seeing it on a daily basis in, in a way that we never have before. And so at a moment like that, you know, I think he understood that he actually had to give voice to his own personal feelings about what was going on and give voice to the reactions that the world is having having to these uh, atrocities. So that was an interesting moment. I mean, it's it, you, as you point out, Mike, it, it, it was something that was probably more for an instinctive reaction, more for domestic consumption without kind of lo- the long-term considerations for how it's going to affect us diplomatically. But uh, never underestimate the ability of U.S. diplomats and or uh, diplomats from other nations to uh, negotiate with war criminals when they need to. So I don't think it's completely foreclosed the door to any sort of, uh, you know, kind of Peace talks. We'll see. I mean, look, we've we've seen all sorts of somersaults by uh, U.S. officials um, over the years. I mean, most recently, I mean, a year or so ago, I was working on the uh, Khashoggi uh, series uh, for Conspiracy Land, and uh, you know, Biden had been calling, uh, saying during the campaign he was going to make the Saudis a pariah state. And that's how he's going to deal with them. And, you know, here we are today uh, sort of, you know, trying to spur the Saudis to produce more oil to bring down American gas prices. For the record, he's not a war criminal. He's a special operation criminal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, a lot to talk about with Ambassador Yovanovitch. She's written a really gripping book. And I got to say, just, you know, one more beat on the her moment in the sun during the uh, first Trump impeachment saga, she is very open about what happened to her and her reaction, just what it, um, how emotionally devastating that was for her to go through that, to be trashed publicly by the president you're serving, and then have your boss, the secretary of state, not say one word in public to defend you. It is worth us all taking a few moments to revisit that sorry episode. But lots more to talk about with uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch. So let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, author of the new book, Lessons from the Edge. Ambassador Yovanovitch, was a career diplomat with the State Department and, of course, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. You know Ukraine as well as anybody who has served there. I want to start out by asking you your reaction when you watched that gripping video that President Zelensky showed to the U.S. Congress the other day, displaying the death and destruction that's being visited upon the country that you served in for so many years. I cried. I cried as, you know, I think that there probably, I've heard tell that there wasn't a dry eye in, on the part of um, congressional representatives either. But, you know, this is 
a crime against humanity. I mean, these kinds of atrocities where civilians are being targeted, nuclear power plants, civilian structures, hospitals, maternity wards, schools, it's appalling. It is appalling. Ambassador, you tracked, obviously, um, Russian intentions in Ukraine for many years. When you were ambassador, that was your second tour in Ukraine. So, you know, when you serve as a U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, a lot of what you do is track the Russians. And uh, in all these years, it's been Vladimir Putin. Did you ever think that it would come to this, to such a grotesque war? I know that our policy was aimed at trying to prevent this and to, and to defend Ukraine. But I'm just curious, does it surprise you that we're here now? It doesn't. It doesn't. I thought when I was ambassador in Ukraine, I thought that Russia, President Putin, had Ukraine kind of where it wanted it. There was that kind of low simmer of a war. A couple of Ukrainian service members, sometimes civilians, would die every week, but it wasn't making Western headlines. Um, But it was destabilizing to Ukraine to have, you know, an active war in the East. And of course, the Russians didn't content themselves only with that hot, hot war, Uh, They were also assassinating key officials in Ukraine. They were spreading disinformation, huge cyber attacks, and the list goes on. And I thought that that kind of destabilizing effort was enough for Russia. And as I would tell people, because the Russians have the means to actually go further if that's what they wanted, and they're not doing that. So I departed in 2019. And I mean, I continued to believe that to be true until we could see the Russians encircling Ukraine with their troops. And even before uh, the Biden administration started releasing intel, I thought, you know, I mean, to move that many men, that much material, I mean, you're not doing that just to send a signal. I mean, you're doing it because you're serious. But even then, I thought that it would not be the full invasion that we are seeing now and the attacks even in the West. So it's, um, it's quite troubling. So I think it's probably fair to say that in the last three weeks, the world has changed. And I'm just sort of curious if you, but, but we're not entirely sure how much and for, for how long. I'm, I'm wondering how you assess the extent of the reshaping of the world order and how much it's going to be a permanent alteration of the way we have to kind of approach Europe and Putin going forward. Well, I think it's too soon to tell, but I think you're absolutely right. There is a before February 24th and an after February 24th. And part of that is about Ukraine, uh, because this is a war to dominate Ukraine on the part of Russia. But it's also, I think, um, President Putin has broader ambitions. You know, he has said that the rest of the Soviet Union, the republics uh, should come back within the fold. That's not an exact quote, but I mean, to that, that, that's certainly the sentiment that he expressed a couple of weeks ago. And I think he's made it clear that he uh, does not like the international rules-based order that was established by countries after World War II because they never wanted to see such death and destruction again. And the Soviet Union was a part of that effort, setting up the UN and many other institutions. And sovereignty, you know, there were a number of principles that went along with that that are enshrined in the UN Charter and in other documents. Um, Sovereignty, the idea that each country gets to uh, decide its own future, um, both internally and externally. So domestic policy and foreign policy, the idea that borders should be inviolate. In other words, you don't just invade because you 
you know, you want a piece of property and on and on. And that has kept our world uh, more secure, more prosperous and more free since World War II. But it wasn't a model that was working for Vladimir Putin because he couldn't compete in kind of an open environment. And so he is trying to return the world to a might makes right. You know, I, I, I want to have Ukraine. And so I'm just going to invade and take it. And he got away with that on 2008 with Georgia, where he hived off uh, chunks of Georgia. He got away with it in 2014 when the international reaction was stronger. There were sanctions that were imposed, but apparently not strong enough because he's doing it again in 2022. And I think if he is successful, he will continue. He needs to be stopped. President Biden has now referred to Putin as a war criminal. It strikes me that once you say that, there's no turning back. There's no way, or tell me, is there any way we could ever have normal diplomatic relations with Putin's Russia once you've labeled him a war criminal? Can you sit down and have meetings with a war criminal? Can you invite him to summits with Western allies? Can you ha ever have business as usual when you're dealing with a state you've labeled who's president, you've labeled a war criminal. Well, I think Putin's own actions have marked him as a war criminal. I mean, we are all seeing this on TV or online. We're seeing what is happening, the, the, the death and destruction, really an attempt to exterminate a nation. And so I think it's Putin's own actions that have, that have labeled him as such. Right. But what I'm saying is that once you've done that, we can't turn the clock back for the U.S. I mean, regardless of the symptoms, we can't continue. Aren't we effectively saying the Russians, somebody has to get rid of Vladimir Putin before we can ever have normal relations with the Russians again? Well, I don't want to parse the president's statement because I don't know what he It's very simple. He said that. he's a war criminal. Well, I think that what we deal with all sorts of people. And I think it's quite clear that Putin needs to be held accountable for the crimes that he is committing. And that he needs to depart as president of Russia one way or another. Well, I heard the deputy secretary of state this morning um, on, I believe it was CNN, say that we are not in the regime change business. So, I mean. Strikes me as a contradiction there. I no longer speak for the U.S. government, so I can't say. <laughs> Ambassador, you said a moment ago he needs to be stopped. And I guess the question is, do you think that the administration and the alliance, uh, Europe and NATO, what they're doing now can or, or will stop him? And how do you think he could be stopped from what he's doing? Well, I think the Biden administration is doing a pretty good job um, with the humanitarian assistance that's being provided and also critically the security assistance that's being provided. I mean, hundred, I think a billion dollars on just this past week alone. 800 million a couple days ago and 200 million uh, package uh, a little bit before that. And so the scale of the assistance that we're providing is important, um, but also the kinds of uh, security assistance we're providing. So anti-tank, the javelins, anti-armor, other kinds of anti-air uh, equipment, weaponized drones, rifles, bullets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's- What's your view yeah. on whether we should have found a way to supply the Ukrainians with these uh, MiG-29 uh, fighter jets. Yeah, I, I think that became a very public discussion in probably not a very helpful way. 
Um, my own view is that maybe there is some way we can continue, we can find a way to provide the necessary equipment for the Ukrainians to maintain their own no-fly zone. I mean, that's what President Zelensky has said. You know, if you're not going to do it, give us the equipment. So is there a way for creative minds at the Pentagon and in other places to do that? I mean, I guess the question sort of hanging over this is how should we be defining actions that are escalatory? So, you know, if you go back to the Obama administration, Obama didn't want to send Javelin uh, anti-tank missiles uh, to the Ukrainians because he was concerned that would be provocative and escalatory. Now the Biden administration is saying we can't send these these MiGs in because that would be uh, escalatory. Meanwhile, Putin is escalating on a daily basis. And at the same time, we are sending a lot of weaponry in that are killing Russians on a daily basis. So how how should we think about this idea of where the line is between escalating and simply allowing the Ukrainians to defend themselves? That is a really, really good question. I think that you're absolutely right, that when we think about this, who's doing the escalating? It's Vladimir Putin. It's certainly not Ukraine. And it's certainly not the West. And in dealing with somebody like Vladimir Putin, we cannot allow him to set the conditions for, for this war. We can't tell him, allow him, you know, and, and um, Foreign Minister Lavrov was on again today saying that supply convoys, et cetera, were fair game in this war. We can't let the Russians set the conditions. And, you know, one of the complicating factors here is that I'm not sure that our definition of what's escalatory or not corresponds to what Putin and the Russians think is escalatory. So that's like that's one really big issue that kind of needs to be dealt with. The other thing, you know, just having watched Putin over the years is this guy is a bully. He only understands strength. He's now graduated to being a war criminal as well. And there is risk also in not responding boldly enough. Where that line is, I don't know. So bottom line, since you are no longer speaking for the United States government, your personal view, what you feel, you know, both in your head and your heart right now, would you like to see the United States find a way to get these fighter jets to the Ukrainians? What I'd like to see is that we get some sort of equipment to the Ukrainians that would help them execute that goal. And, you know, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's MiGs, maybe it's something else. I'm not actually a military expert. So, you know, I, I kind of leave that to military experts to figure out what that would be. Um, but I think we need to be as creative as possible to figure out how we can help the Ukrainians do this. I mean, for no other reason than for the humanitarian reasons, because, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people are dying every day. So this week saw a series of minor stories, not uh, heavily covered regarding China's involvement in this conflict. Uh, there were reports that the Chinese were poised to begin sending military assistance to Russia. Today, the President Biden had a phone call with the premier of China, Xi Jinping. I'm wondering how much should we be keeping an eye on China in this evolving dispute, or is it always going to be just sort of a side story? I think it's going to be critical to watch what China does. Uh, you know, they, right at the beginning of the Olympics, they signed that um, statement uh, or put out the statement of uh, kind of undying friendship and uh, mutual solidarity and that the partnership had no limits. Um, so I'm hoping there are limits to that partnership. 
you know, from an American point of view, I think, or at least from my point of view, this war that Putin has chosen does not benefit China in any way. China is one of the countries that has benefited from uh, the international order. Uh, you know, its, its economy has boomed as a, as, as a result. And China, I think, is a country that likes predictability and more subtlety and is, you know, very keen on the international powers continuing to observe uh, the principles of sovereignty and um, that sort of thing. So I think that China's reaction is going to be very important. And so we hear stories, of, you know, as, as you've noted, hear stories that Russia is turning to China. You know, first it was for MREs, now perhaps for other things. I mean, I don't know how is China going to react. Chinese coverage of the war uh, has changed a little bit where all of a sudden now they are showing some of the damage and destruction that is being done by Russian forces in Ukraine. And we know just from our reaction here in the United States and in Europe that um, that is very powerful, those images. And, um, you know, my understanding is uh, the Chinese ambassador made a, uh, to Ukraine made a, a visit to Lviv and was supportive. So I think we should continue to watch what China is doing. I think it's remarkable that there was a two-hour phone conversation between the leaders of China and the United States. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time for President Biden and for Xi to put into a phone call. So it'll be interesting to see what results. Ambassador, I want to ask you uh, about your book, uh, Lessons from the Edge, and the lessons you think are most important for Americans to hear uh, at this point. But before we get to that, one uh, question that comes up is, you know, we've all been, the world has been inspired by uh, Zelensky and how he has spoken up to uh, implore everybody to come to Ukraine's aid. You actually met Zelensky, I believe, before he became president, while he was a candidate. Give us a sense of what you thought of him at the time. Did you see any hint of the kind of character and strength that he has shown over these last several weeks? Yeah. So I met with him a number of times in the fall of uh, 2018 and in the early uh, winter, um, right up through April of uh, 2019. He was, you know, at that time, a comedian and the chief executive of a very large entertainment enterprise. And he, the first time I met him, he was really intent on sharing with us that, you know, he had built this company through his own hard work, his own talent, and his own skills. And um, I thought that was interesting because clearly he wanted us to know that he had executive skills and that he saw himself as a business person. That's not what I had been expecting. I was expecting a funny guy and he was funny, but he was also, you know, substantive. And so, you know, as our meetings progressed uh, and it became more and more clear that he was going to be the next president of the United uh, of, uh, of Ukraine, our meetings um, became more substantive in terms of how would the U.S. and Ukraine work together, that sort of thing. You know, he's a very smart guy. He's a quick learner. But did I see, you know, a Churchill in the making? <laughs> no, I, I did not. And I think the Ukrainian people, they voted Zelensky in as the protest candidate. They voted him in because they trusted him. He was in their living rooms uh, with, you know, his TV serial. They voted him in with 73% of the vote, I think. And I think that their trust in him has been rewarded. He is, uh, he's phenomenal. He has 
reflected the will of and the spirit of the Ukrainian people, but he has also united them and inspired them and inspired the world as well. I mean, it's it's been incredible. You didn't get what Zelensky would become, but you did have a pretty good handle on Vladimir Putin. And I was struck. I saw a clip of your appearance on uh, the Colbert show the other night uh, in which you displayed a bracelet that you were wearing and that you had bulk ordered while you were ambassador. And the bracelet said, and unlike national TV, you can say anything on this podcast. So you want to tell us what the bracelet said and why you bulk ordered it? Yeah, well, I don't know. Can you see it? There it is. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, Putin. (laughs) What prompted you? (laughs) I I didn't have visitors because even though I did not foretell this massive criminal invasion of Ukraine, but I could see every day how Russia was destabilizing its neighbor, Ukraine. Ukraine was not a threat of any sort to Russia, but Russia, you know, with the kinetic war in the East, with the assassinations, the cyber attacks, the disinformation, economic wars, it was destabilizing the country. And I wanted to sort of find a way to, um, you know, keep that in the mind of our visitors uh, to Ukraine. Especially, you know, the straight-laced diplomat, People weren't expecting that. (laughs) Since Mike asked you about your first meetings with Zelensky, I have to ask you about your account of your first meeting with President Trump after he was elected. President who? Trump. (laughs) Uh, The guy before Biden, you might remember. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In in which... um, I'll not say his name. (laughs) In which he, he said something. You were having a policy discussion about Russia and Ukraine. He said something that I think revealed a certain ignorance about the situation that you found alarming. Tell us about that meeting and what he said. So this was a meeting between then president of Ukraine, President Poroshenko, and um, our president, President Trump, in the Oval Office. And uh, there was all sorts of dysfunction that preceded the meeting. But to answer your question, you know, I was there along with a, a couple of other Americans and Ukrainians. And um, when um, President Poroshenko was talking about the war in the Donbass and President Trump turned to our national security advisor and said, we've got troops there. Right. And, you know, I didn't know which was worse. Did this mean that he thought we were actually in a shooting war with Russia or did he not know who the war was against or did he not know where his own troops were? I mean, clearly the latter was the case. We did have troops in Ukraine. We had troops all the way you know, west on the Polish border at a place called, uh, a training camp called Yavarif, where we trained uh, Ukrainian soldiers along with the Brits and the Canadians. That was the base that was attacked um, several days ago. So we're now, I guess, about three weeks or so into the war, maybe a little bit longer. Um, It feels like three years. Yeah. 300 years. Yeah. And the Ukrainian armed forces, as well as the civilians of Ukraine, are waging a, really a heroic battle against a a larger force, even if that larger force is somewhat dysfunctional. How long do you think they can hold out? How much longer can this go? You know, I wouldn't want to put a time limit on it for a couple of reasons. I think all of us underestimated the Ukrainian, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us underestimated what the Ukrainian military could do. And I think, you know, there's that indefinable, that indefinable element of, you know, just 
the will, the national will. The Russians came into their country. They came into their homes. They are killing their children. And the Ukrainians are going to fight back. And that is like a force multiplier. And we are seeing that on the ground every day. So I think, you know, I knew the Ukrainians were going to fight back, but I underestimated how well they would do, how long they would hold out. And, you know, that indefinable element of national will. The other thing I would say is that even if the Russians dominate militarily, the Ukrainians are going to continue to fight back. There's going to be a guerrilla war and there will be civil resistance. I would not want to be a Russian soldier going into a cafe. I'd be wondering what they were serving me. I would not want to get into a car serviced by a Ukrainian mechanic. I mean, I think it's going to be very, very dangerous for the Russian occupiers. And in the end, the Ukrainians will win, but it will be, there will be a heavy, heavy price to pay. So I hope that with you know, this billion dollar package that is speeding its way, I hope, um, to Ukraine, and I hope there's going to be backfill too, because the Ukrainians are using what we have sent them before. And you can see the results on the battlefield. Before you were ambassador to Ukraine, you also were ambassador to Armenia and uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, You served in Moscow, in London, in Somalia. What are the lessons from the edge most important from your book that uh, people should know? The reason that I wrote the book is I wanted people you know, many people wrote me letters and said, you know, tell us more, tell us more about your life. Tell us about your challenges and what you've done. And so I wanted people to understand what diplomacy is all about and how important it is to Americans. Because I think for many people, it's, it's a little mysterious. It's a little remote or push cookie pushers is, you know, the the sort of the, the, the title they, they, uh, or kind of the charge against us that all we do is go to to receptions and live a good life. Well, that wasn't my career at all. It, you know, as you said, I served in Somalia. I served in a lot of other really challenging places. And what we do as diplomats is we are, you know, the pointy end of the spear to support U.S. national security objectives. And we, so that is doing things like taking care of American citizens. I mean, if you get lost, if you get arrested, if you lose your passport, if you want to adopt a child, you need to be evacuated, God forbid. Who do you turn to? You turn to the U.S. Embassy. If you're a businessman who wants to conclude a big deal in a country, often U.S. ambassadors will go in with that American business to advocate for that company, you know, bringing jobs and profits to the United States. We work hand in hand with the military and other agencies to work on security issues And, you know, every day we are building relationships with other countries so that when there is a crisis, the U.S. doesn't go into that alone. We have partners and allies that are going to be working with us. And I think right now we can see that in the response to to the the Russian invasion. So, Ambassador, then talk to us, because you write a lot about this in your book, about what it was like to be in a position as a top American diplomat where you are pursuing all of those objectives, which you know are noble, positive objectives, which you really believed in, and for your government, your your president, to send people in that turned this all on its head, and you became the problem, and they were working with the corrupt 
figures in Ukraine who you perceived and who we perceived as as the problem and the people who are in the way of getting in the way of of the kinds of reform that we thought was important. What was that like, that kind of Orwellian inversion? Well, that, that you know, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, that's the way it felt like, you know, this can't really be happening. And, you know, of course, nobody sat me down and said, you know, this is what is happening. I would get little whispered warnings from uh, Ukrainian uh, officials, including very senior officials that, you know, you, you got to watch your back. I mean, this and this and this is happening. But I would call back to Washington or at least my part of Washington, the State Department, and people would say, no, you know, no, there's no problem at all. You know, you're, you're, you're doing the job. Keep at it. Keep on going. But there was this swirl of uh, rumor in Ukraine. And then, of course, uh, with the articles published in The Hill, then it became, you know, a drumbeat in, in the Washington Beltway and beyond. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was recalled. So, you know, just picking up on that, it was never, those of us who followed this at the time closely and were covering it, it was never quite clear what it was that got them all worked up about you and why they thought that you were an obstacle to what Trump and his cronies wanted to do in Ukraine. I mean, we have this sort of general understanding that these two characters, Lev Parnes and, and, and Fruman, who were like the aides de camp to Rudy Giuliani, both of whom have recently been convicted of federal crimes in New York, wanted you gone. But it wasn't clear why. Now, in your book, you suggest it was, if I'm reading it correctly, they wanted to do a gas deal. They wanted some kind of sole source contract for a gas deal in Ukraine, and they thought you were getting in the way of that. Do I have that yeah. right? Is that what this was all about at the start? So the short answer is, I don't really know. <laughs> you know, nobody has sort of sat me down and said, let me explain why we needed to get rid of you. And so, you know, I'm like the rest of America, you know, trying to like pull on the various threads of what is being reported or has come out or what people have said to me. And I think over, you know, the next period of time, we're going to learn even more. Um, but I think the gas issue, I think, is 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 one credible uh, thing. But I also think that when Parnas and Furman put uh, Giuliani together with Lutsenko, the, um, the prosecutor general who was kind of like our attorney general, that individual had it out for me. I mean, I knew he didn't like me. I didn't realize how much he didn't like me. And um, so I think it was kind of a quid pro quo there that Lutsenko would feed uh, The Hill and Rudy Giuliani fairy stories about my alleged bad behavior. And in return... Giuliani would, you know, get me fired, would remove me because I was pushing uh, the, the prosecutor general to do the reforms that he came to office promising he would do. Um, and I think that was the quid pro quo. And um, if, if I were fired, then Lutsenko would provide the dirt on. But just one more beat on that. Because I don't think there is any dirt, I should make clear. You you suggest in the um, book that Parnas and Fruman were really working or may have been working for Dmitry Firtash, a corrupt oligarch who's under indictment in, uh, in by the Justice Department in the United States, and that somehow this corrupt oligarch Firtash had a hand or an interest 
in what was going to play out. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that is also a possibility because energy is where the money is. And so uh, no surprise, that's also where if there's going to be corruption, that's where corruption is going to be. And the uh, Ukrainian gas company was headed up by a reformer. And so he was trying to close down the, to reform the company and close down avenues of corruption. I mean, for such a large company, that is the work of years, but he was making progress. And I think um, our understanding was that people wanted to get rid of Kobayev. I mean, that was the case for the whole time that I was there, because when you, when you reform, uh, when you start closing off avenues of wealth, you're going to make enemies. And so they wanted to get rid of him. It was the position of the U.S. government that not only did Ukraine need strong, resilient, independent institutions, um, but it also needed the right people in place that would push forward those reforms. And we thought that Kobayev was um, acting, you know, uh, doing a superb job in that respect. And obviously, we would have been very critical if he had been fired. One um, pushback or the alternative version from Republicans and Trump defenders on this is that there were legitimate grounds to for U.S. officials to be concerned about the activities of Hunter Biden, who was put on the board of Burisma, this company under investigation, not just in Ukraine, but by the British Sears Fraud Office as well, and that that created a problem for the U.S. government. And I should point out that no less than George Kent, the career State Department official who you worked closely with, testified that he was very concerned about the optics of having Hunter Biden being involved in this company when his father, the then vice president, Joe Biden, was the point man for uh, the United States in Ukraine. Now, you barely touch on the Hunter Biden issue in the book. I think you've got just a, a paragraph or two. But did you share the concerns of George Kent? about Hunter Biden's uh, role with Burisma? And if so, did you express them at the time? So I think there's at least the appearance of a conflict of interest, if not an actual conflict of appearance, uh, a conflict of interest. So when I arrived in 2016, I was drinking from the fire hose. And I arrived in August. So the Obama administration, therefore Vice President Biden, I mean, that was five or six months uh, of time. And I know it seems hard to believe now, but this was just not a huge issue for me um, because there were so many other things going on that I was trying to to manage and deal with. And so, yeah, it just wasn't a, a priority. And, you know, perhaps that was a mistake. But it had come to your attention. You knew about what yeah, he was it doing. Came to my attention as I testified mm-hmm. that uh, there was, uh, so when State Department officials are prepared for Senate testimony, there are questions and answers. You get a big, long, big book like this of, you know, here are the possible questions that could come up. And uh, there was one on Hunter Biden. And the answer was, uh, I would refer you to the office of the vice president. Hmm. And of course, as George Kent testified, he was told that uh, the vice president simply didn't have the bandwidth at that time to curb the activities of his son. Yeah. But I would also say, even with everything that has come out over the last couple of years, it's not clear to me that there was wrongdoing on the part of his son. So just just to say that. Yeah. 
And we should point out the New York Times did report the other day that the Justice Department investigation has expanded from tax violations or alleged tax violations by Hunter Biden to also include money laundering and uh, FARA violations that he may and, have. And what? FARA, a Foreign Agents Registration Act that he did not. That wasn't that, that. Yeah. That whether he should have registered as a foreign agent for Burisma. But anyway, let's go to the notorious, infamous phone call uh, between Trump and Zelensky, where they start talking about you. And of course, you testified just about how devastated you were to read that the president was uh, calling you, saying you were bad news and that uh, some things were going to start happening to you. It's still sort of just mind boggling to read those comments that Trump would say to a foreign leader. And I'm just, I know it was it was an emotional time for you, but looking back on it, you know, after a few years, what do you make of those comments and what should it tell us about what was going on? Really, it's hard for me to figure out why he would have raised me even in the first place, uh, President Trump, I mean. He had already had me pulled out of my job in, in Ukraine as ambassador. And so to hear him say, and she's going to go through some things, that was frightening because I didn't know what kind of things he had in mind because he'd already effectively fired me, right? I mean, what else was he going to do? And it was, it's just, you know, the only word I can think of is inappropriate, but that's kind of a weak word. Why would you malign your own officials to a president of another country. I mean, it's it's very, I can't make any sense of it. And just one more point on this. The Secretary of State at the time was Mike Pompeo. You clearly wanted the senior officials of the State Department, starting with Pompeo, to speak up in support of you because that's what they should do, stand by their ambassadors. That's the rhetoric of all secretaries of state. And yet, Pompeo never did so. That's right. And he's a man that's coming out of a military tradition. You always take care of your troops. He came into the State Department with uh, swagger, as you'll recall that word, even though some of us kind of wondered, you know, diplomats don't usually swagger. But okay, if he's going to build morale and stand by us and everything else, we welcomed him because Tillerson had been a bit of a disaster. So we really welcomed Pompeo. And turns out he was a disaster as well. He came in with uh, this philosophy. He was going to give us an ethos. And there were all these principles about standing by your people, acting with integrity. He failed in every single one of those principles. He failed in his leadership. And he failed to speak up for you and defend an American ambassador um, yeah. who was under attack. Yeah. yeah and, and I'd actually like to expand it a little bit because obviously, you know, this is my story. And so, you know, it was hard for me. But it, it goes beyond that because others were watching, others within the State Department who wondered, you know, gosh, if I uh, follow U.S. policy and maybe tangle with some important people in a country, is the same thing going to happen to me? Other governments were watching and wondering whether career officials actually represented the Trump administration or not, since, you know, I was being cut loose in such a dramatic and unusual way. And I think bad actors around the world, they saw that and they saw that they could manipulate our personnel process, maybe our policy process as well. That is hugely undermining to our national security. In terms of the um, 
institutional impact on the State Department and the career foreign service officers and diplomats serving overseas. What has the lasting um, impact of that been? And to what extent do you think that under the Biden administration, under the new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, they've made a real effort to kind of revert back to the norm? And what do you hear from your colleagues there? What do you observe yourself in terms of the state of the American diplomacy and the State Department right now? Well, I think that the Trump administration did hollow out the, the State Department, you know, kind of the snickering jokes about the State Department with Pompeo standing there and sort of snickering along with the president. A lot of people left. A lot of, you know, different bureaucratic moves were made so that people had to leave. And the department wasn't full, wasn't funded uh, sufficiently, although that wasn't necessarily a, a new thing. So it was pretty devastating. And I think the first impeachment um, inquiry was really tough on a lot of people in the State Department because they could see how the president, how the secretary of state were dealing with career officials. And I think fast forward to this administration, obviously they came in with a different set of beliefs about career uh, employees, but it takes a long time to rebuild. You know, it's just a minute to destroy something and it takes a lot longer to rebuild. And it was made all the more complicated by the fact of COVID. And that, um, you know, how, how difficult it is to, I see all of you guys are in your homes, as am I. You know, it, it just make, makes it all the harder. Um, although I do think that um, Secretary Blinken is really trying hard and has the right instincts on these things. I will, um, I will say that as I'm thinking about this, I think the sort of healing process at the State Department probably began when, during those impeachment hearings, when all of those career diplomats and professionals like yourself, like George Kent, like Bill Taylor, went up there and testified and Americans could see their professionalism. Americans could see that they were not partisan hacks, but you know they were working in the interests of, of the United States. So that was one of my, take, one of my big takeaways from those hearings was mm. the presence of, of American diplomats. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I would say, I mean, it wasn't just people from the State Department, diplomats. It was also people from other agencies. Every single career civil servant stepped up and did the right thing, as you know, we did from the State Department. And I think that speaks to the fact that we do have integrity, that we do want to do the right thing, even when it's hard. We're ready to do that. Ambassador, I want to thank you for sharing your essence, uh, your insights and lessons. Uh, the and book, your essence. <laughs> <laughs> right. The book is Lessons from the Edge. Ambassador Ivanovich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.